friends. Yeah, thank you. And those of you watching online, I know you said hi too, didn't you? Yes, we're glad you're here as well. So today we're continuing in our series, When You Pray, and we're going to reflect on a really intense prayer by Jesus. And to get from Palm Sunday to the prayer, it requires a bit of a journey. So today, the church celebrates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. He was symbolizing his royal nature as king, being worshipped by throngs of people. It's an amazing scene. The prayer we look at today happens in a context much bigger than the scene that we'll focus on. It's the panorama from the parade to the garden and then beyond. The people, even the disciples, didn't see the downward spiral that was about to begin. But Jesus knew. We're going to fast forward from today's scene, Palm Sunday, to the Thursday of Holy Week. We're going to pass by the cursing of the fig tree, the challenges to Jesus' authority, the parables of warnings, his debate with the Jewish leaders, his calling out of the scribes and Pharisees, his teaching on the last days, the reflection on his anointing, Jesus' plot. And that was just Monday and Tuesday. And then we get to Wednesday. Silent. except for the scheming, plotting of the religious leaders as they seek to kill Jesus. Then we move to the upper room. John 13 describes the scene. John 14 records the teaching that occurred there. And then in chapters 15 to 17 of John, It records the ongoing teaching of Jesus from the time they left the upper room until they reached the Mount of Olives. And these chapters are often referred to as the upper room discourse. And the last three weeks, we have been camped out on prayers that took place in the upper room and after leaving to head for Gethsemane. See, as they left the upper room, Mark 14, 26 says that they sang a hymn Worshipping. It's likely that the journey from the upper room to the Mount of Olives included, in addition to Jesus' teaching and his praying, the continued singing of what is known as the Hallel. The Hallel is Psalm 113 through 118, and it was linked inextricably to Passover and to worship. It was part of their hymn book. What a beautiful scene. Jesus' teaching recording in John 15 and 16, familiar teachings, the vine and the branch, 
his teaching on the Holy Spirit, his clear encouragement to the disciples that their grief would ultimately turn to joy, and then his prayer, all interspersed with singing and worship. Psalm 113, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because he inclined his ear to me. Therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. Psalm 117, another chorus of worship. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 118. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And then in verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And then finally, after crossing the Kidron Valley and reaching the Mount of Olives, they arrive at Gethsemane. Gethsemane means, the word means, oil press. The Mount of Olives was named that for a reason. Olive groves everywhere, and there were these presses where they would collect the olives and bring them and crush them and then take the oil and extract it for their purposes. Symbolic that Jesus would be here tonight. This would be the place where the crushing of Jesus would begin. It would be the precursor to the cross. And yet, this was one of Jesus' favorite spots. In John 18, verse 2, it says that Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So what I'd like us to do for a few moments is I want you to actually just get captivated and immersed into this scene. What I've done is I've collected together the writings from all four of the Gospels and put them together in a harmony of what took place. And I want us to just allow these words to speak over us, the scene that we're about to look at. Listen as I read. When he had finished praying, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. They crossed the Kidron Valley, and on the other side there was an olive grove named Gethsemane. And his, he and his disciples went into it. On reaching the place, he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, fell with his face to the ground, and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. If you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. 
The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he again found them sleeping. Exhausted from sorrow, their eyes were heavy. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. And they did not know what to say to him. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So he left them and went away one more, once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let's pray. Father, what a scene. Real situation. Real circumstance. Real emotion. Real words. Oh, Father, by your Spirit, allow them to penetrate our hearts. We open ourselves up on the Godward side to hear from you afresh. Speak, Lord. We, your people, are listening. Amen. This passage is, it's like a diamond. You know what a diamond has, it's got all these different features, and to really see it, to really capture all that's going on, you have to kind of, kind of move it around, right? And the light catches it in different ways, and you see the color, and you see the fire, and all the rest of it. This passage is like that. We're going to approach this passage today like a diamond. We're going to look at it from several different angles. At first, just some lessons that we get learned we learn from seeing how Jesus prayed. The first thing is that he invited others to join him. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And when he began to be deeply distressed and troubled, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Prayer together. He also prayed repeatedly three times. In this harmony, Jesus prays for the same thing, that this cup might pass, and that, more importantly, that the Father's will would be done. And then he also surrenders himself to the will of God. Yes, he made a request, but always under the overarching commitment to do the will of the Father. John 6, 38 says it, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, I want you to think back for a minute to the first prayer in the series. Okay, no, I'm not going to ask you what it was. Some of you are freaking out. Just relax. Okay? It was the Lord's Prayer. Oh, yeah, now I remember. Right? The disciples asked Jesus how to pray, and one of the things he taught them was to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now... Here he is in the garden, living 
that out perfectly in front of them. I'm sure later when they reflected back on this scene that that line from the Lord's Prayer would really come alive for them in incredible ways. It should be true for us as well. Jesus living out and embodying what he had asked his disciples to pray, what he asks you and I to pray. There's some lessons, I think, in this for us. We need to learn from Jesus' example to pray together. Prayer is actually a team sport a lot of the time. We pray with family. We pray in our small groups. We pray in our prayer groups. As staff, we're praying all the time. We're joining together and lifting our voices to God. Yesterday morning, all morning, there were tons of people here experiencing a prayer retreat together. We pray together. But Jesus also makes it clear that the guard, in the garden that there's place for praying repeatedly about something. We understand that. You don't just pray once for somebody's healing. Oh, one and done. On to the next thing. No, no, no. We keep praying and praying and praying. We don't pray just once for somebody's salvation. We keep praying. Asking God to work, to draw them to himself. There's so many things that we need to just keep praying for. One of the things that Dawn and I think about regularly is a little phrase that she coined as we began to see God working over time. And the phrase is simply this. Where there's breath, there's hope. Where there's breath, there's hope. And that's why we continue to pray. We pray. And yes, we're also reminded here that everything we pray, every time we pray, it is with the clear priority that we want what he wants. It's his will that we want to see done. But there's actually one more lesson in this. Jesus didn't get what he asked for. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't get what he prayed for. See, Jesus prayed for something three times in the garden, and he didn't get what he asked for. He was heard. The Bible's clear about that. But his request was not granted. There's a profound lesson in this for us. We're, we're so captivated, we're fixated on getting what we ask for. And here in the garden, we see Jesus asking that the cup might be taken from him. And the answer, nope. We should ponder that as we think about our own posture in prayer. There's a profound lesson for this, for us in this. See, this is the beginning of something that Jesus had never known. The beginning of his isolation from the Father. For the first time in his life, for the first time in all eternity, he senses the presence of the Father becoming more distant. The text says that Jesus began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul 
My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't know what kind of sorrow you've experienced. I don't know that I've ever experienced a sorrow that I would have described that way. A sorrow to the point of death. What could cause this? For him to be so troubled, for him to not even be able to stand, to collapse. What would cause Jesus to be praying with such intensity that the capillaries under the skin in his head would burst and that blood would begin to seep out of his pores? Some have said that he was afraid of the cruel physical torture and death that awaited him. Others have suggested that it was the abandonment by those closest to him that disturbed him most greatly. Neither of these are the cause. He was not afraid of death. We'll see that in a moment. He knew his disciples would come back. These were not the cause. The clue to what caused this heart-wrenching scene is in a word that occurs twice in the text and implied as he prayed the third time as well. It's the word cup. This is the word that makes all of this make sense. It's this cup that Jesus asked to be spared from. What is that? Well, through the Bible, the image of the cup relates to God's wrath for sin and evil. Listen to Isaiah 51, verse 17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. Psalm 75, verses 7 and 8, is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Revelation 14, verse 10. They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. This is what's causing Jesus such torment. I like the way John Stott paints the picture. He says this, Was he to become so identified with sinners as to bear their judgment? From this contact with human sin, his sinless soul recoiled. From the experience of alienation from his father, which the judgment on sin would involve, he hung back in horror. Judgment, sin, separation. See, each prayer started with pleading that this cup might be taken from him, and each prayer ended with not what I will, but what you will. Jesus would surrender. He would pay this awful price for you and for me. And this leads to the powerful question in John 18, 11, as Peter tries to oppose Jesus' arrest. You remember the scene? He wasn't very good at swinging this thing. He only took the ear off, made for a slightly easier miracle. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? 
This is the cup he's talking about. And John Stott goes on to say this. The agony in the garden opens a window into the greater agony of the cross. If to bear man's sin and God's wrath was so terrible in anticipation, what must the reality have been like? If to bear man's sin and God's wrath was so terrible in anticipation, here in the garden, what must the reality have been like? And then he quotes a hymn, we may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear, but we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. See, the focus of Jesus in the garden is us. It's you and it's me. John 10.10 says, The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Listen to Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 10. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Then we go back to John 17. We've heard these words before. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Friends, he did it for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. See friends, here's the scene. This is what's happening. Jesus steps in front of you. He takes your sin. He takes your judgment upon himself. This is the cup. And Jesus would willfully drink it for us. And so, the isolation begins. An isolation that he feels here in the garden that would ultimately ex be expressed on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did it for you. And for me, for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. Raniero Cantamalesa says it this way. Only he who acknowledges that the passion is his fault truly knows the passion. Let me say that again. 
Only he who acknowledges that the passion is his fault truly knows the passion. Everything else is digression, he concludes. And then, all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, comes this release. Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Does this sound to you like somebody who's afraid of dying? No, 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 no. This was an appointment he was not going to miss. And friend, it was for you that he kept it. The hour has come. Up until now, that hadn't been the case. Right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, there's a bit of a problem because a miracle is requested. And we hear in John 2, verse 4, these words in response. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. In John 8, 20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Over and over again, we hear this. His hour had not yet come. Up until now, it was not his time. But Jesus made it clear that timing was everything. And yet, throughout his entire earthly life, the clock was ticking. 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 Down to this. And now, the hour has come. There's two ways that the scripture thinks about this. The first is that the hour for evil to burst forth in all its vile rebellion has come. Luke 22, 53. Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. But oh friends, don't miss it. This hour won't last. This hour of vile rebellion doesn't get the last word because the clock ticks down to the fulfillment of God's eternal purposes. John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. John 13, 1, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And then John 17, 1, after Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Now is the time where he steps in front of you and me and he takes the cup that was meant to be ours, our sin, our judgment. No, I will take it. Well, there's another lesson 
It's an interesting one. Three times in the text, and we have to be careful, we have to think about this, because when things get repeated, it's kind of like the literary version of yelling at you. Right? (laughs) Repetition is like, pay attention! Three times in the text, it says, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. Prayers work. Obviously, it was very hard work because the, the three disciples were having a real struggle with it. They were having a hard time keeping up. And the word watch here means to have the alertness of a guard at night. Now, being a guard at night is a little bit different than being a guard during the day for two reasons. One, it's harder to see what's going on and more... Eh, Murky stuff happens at night. Let's just put it that way. So if you're going to watch the way Jesus is saying, he's saying you're going to watch and pray like a guard is alert at night. It means that we're to be diligent in our relationship with Jesus, to place it as our highest priority. See, even though we are invited into this intimate communion with God. That's what prayer is. Think about it. You and I having access to the living God 24-7. Communing with Him. Conversing with Him. Speaking to Him. Him speaking to us. It's incredible. Even though we have this intimate communion with God, we don't always take advantage of it. Sometimes we're sleeping. I think sometimes (laughs) I'm sleepwalking. Oh, I'm still moving around. You would look at me and say I'm alert. But I'm not attentive to my God in the way that I should be. And this too connects back to Jesus' cry, the hour has come, because we see a transition happen in Romans 13, verse 11 and 12. And do this, understanding the present time, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. (laughs) Talking to the church. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jesus, wake up, watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. Paul, wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Oh, friends, today, hear God's cry echoing down from the garden to you and to me. Wake up. Be attentive. Stay alert. Oh, there's so much preoccupation and fascination with revival in these days. Seeing pockets of it bursting forth. Curious about it, desiring it, praying for it. All good things. But friends, at the end of the day, what is revival? It's waking up to God. It's being attentive to Him in every facet of our lives. Sensitive to sin, quick to confess and be restored. In step with him, Galatians 5 says. 
day in and day out, picking up our cross every day and following him. It's this attention to Jesus that brings revival. Oh, friends, let's do that today. Let's do that this week. As we move into Holy Week, let's be fully awake. Fully awake to Jesus' presence. Fully awake to his stepping in and taking the cup. Fully awake to his love and his mercy and his grace that you and I in the sound of my voice who know Jesus have experienced unmerited favor. It's incredible. Let's be awake. Let's stop and reflect on all that Jesus has done and is doing for us in these days. Because friends, the clock is still ticking. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a scene. I've stood in that garden and I wondered what it must have been like. The agony, the anguish, the commitment, the determination to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Oh, Jesus, we bow in your presence and we say thank you. Thank you for this incredible gift. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for this image that gives us a clear glimpse into what it cost and the price that you were prepared to pay to bring us to yourself. Oh, dear God, help us to be awake today. Help us to be awake this week, to be attentive to you and all that you're doing. We commit our lives afresh to you. Thank you for our salvation. Oh, friend, you may be listening and it's clear to you, maybe for the first time, that you have never taken advantage of that rich reality that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. That he purchased your salvation and that it's possible for you to be brought back into right relationship with the living God. That you might have life and have it to the full. And I believe that there are people listening right now. I believe that you are hearing the Spirit of God, feeling him draw you to himself. And I want to pray for you and invite you to pray and invite Jesus into your life. 
just pray along with me. Jesus, I don't know whether I didn't recognize it or I've ignored it or I've just kind of kicked it to the curb. But I have been doing things my own way. I've been living life on my own terms. In the Bible's terms, I'm a sinner. And I deserve judgment and wrath. And it's stunning to me as I sit here that you would say, no, I'll take it. Oh, Father, forgive me for my sin. I'm sorry. I want to turn from living life my way and follow you. I want to become attentive to you. So I invite you into my life as Savior. I surrender my life to you as Lord. And in this moment, I receive that rich gift of salvation and life that will change my today and my forever. I say thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your amazing grace and this profound gift. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.